as Phil rightly says, we're continuing in, well, this, he addressed it as the Psalms of the Summer. And um, I, that may be so, but um, the picture that that brings is a little bit more uh, joyful than a lot of what the Psalms bring to us. You know, we think of songs of the summer, it makes us happy, but um, not necessarily with the Psalms. The Psalms are that cry of anguish a lot of the time from the psalmist to God. And this one is a particularly um, dark one. It's quite in contrast to last week's when we thought about the pleasures in God forevermore. But this was rather dark, and we're going to make our way through this. We're going to make our way through it, hopefully, fairly quickly to begin with, and then we'll, then we'll see why. Well, the scene is, unfortunately, all too common, isn't it? A husband and wife go out to a party together. And as the evening progresses, it becomes uh, clear how this relationship works or doesn't. Snide comments, put-downs, embarrassing stories. This is the ammunition of the husband against the wife to put her in her place. As the husband laughs at her, his superiority grows. As the husband recalls an innocent mistake that she may have made, he betrays her as clumsy, irresponsible and undependable, while making himself look far better. Thing is, it's all about control, isn't it? Keep her small and I'll be big. Make her look stupid and I'll be clever. Take her hope away and dignity and she'll remain obedient. And yet, as we know, this might just be the start of things. You know, that sinful desire to control and suppress knows no bounds. You know, the jibe a man takes at his wife all too often turns it into a fist to keep her quiet. Perhaps it's the children that need to learn respect, to bend their knee to their father. But the need for superiority and that expression of control and oppression is wider than just personal relationships, isn't it? History is scarred with numerous events of evil intentions of the heart of men and women. You see, the weapons are just the same. Propaganda, lies, and violence. It's just the tools and the subjects that change. You see, we end up with world wars, apartheid, and genocide. Well, Psalm 74 recounts a time when the full force of an empire on the rampage uses every dirty trick in the book to see a nation brought to its knees to express its control and domination. You see, the Babylonian Empire was unstoppable. It was out for world domination. And then recently it was the turn of Israel to fill its destructive and oppressive force. And it wasn't the first time that Israel had been threatened. The Assyrians had a go. Now, they weren't too weak either. They were a mean bunch, cruel and very destructive. Well, they had camped around Jerusalem, but the Assyrian elephant couldn't squash the Israel mouse because it was not God's will for this to happen at this time. And so they were spared the onslaught and destruction of Assyria, not because of might, for Assyria was far superior in number, but because God would not allow it to happen. But the scene is oh so different here. 
the destructive, oppressive, suppressive regime of Babylon was in the face of Israel. They had come and conquered. They had taken Jerusalem. Around about 587 BC. And people were taken away and their land was ruined. Because it was the will of God that this should happen. This was the exile that he was proclaiming to them to repent and turn back, otherwise this would happen. And now they felt the full force of God's judgment. And the Babylonians knew where to hurt people. They knew how to break them. The existence and identity of Israel was founded on the God of the Bible, the God of their scriptures, the God of the land of Israel. And so we read of them targeting God's people because it wasn't an ordinary nation. They hadn't picked on anybody, but this was Israel. It was God's nation, God's people, intimately bound with the reputation of God. So they were so closely bound together because of the promises and covenant that God had made with them. Whatever happened to them was as if it was happening to God himself. Well, we see for the first three verses of this psalm that they were utterly perplexed. They were really misunderstanding the situation. They They were confused. They didn't know what to do. They knew God had been angry with them. They were in exile. But for how long? Why have you rejected us forever, O God? He starts, the psalmist. It just didn't make sense that God would allow such crazily bad stuff to be happening to them. And you see what their basis of their plea is. It's the covenant, the promises and covenant that God had made with him and the faithfulness of God himself. You see, in verse 1, he says... Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? We are his sheep. He is our shepherd. It goes on to say, this is the congregation, the people that you purchased. We are his people. He has paid for us. We don't buy something and then chuck it away, do we? That would be ridiculous. He describes us the tribe of uh, your inheritance or your heritage, redeemed by him. Again, that picture of being bought by God. We are to be his forever. This is, our, this is his inheritance. His heritage is the people of God. So why on earth do people stand where our temple was and laugh and mock? Surely this is Mount Zion, where God has dwelt, it says. In verse 2, all that defined them as a people had been destroyed And they just want God to come and just have a look and do something about it. Verse 3. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. They were utterly perplexed. But then we get verses 4 to 11 and we can see where their anger is. I'm going to read through that. Your foes roared in the place where... You met with us. They set up their standards as signs. Imagine, you know, we have the pirate ships with their skull and crossbone. Imagine what if they came right into the centre of London, took down the Union Jack and stuck that one up. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They went berserk with sharp implements. 
They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatches. They didn't care for what they were destroying. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no miraculous signs, no prophets are left, and none of us knows how long will this be. You see, it's personal. Your foes. He's addressing God. Your foes. It's not us. Again, that, relationship, that covenant relationship which binds their destiny with his name, so intimately woven. They say, it's not our fight, it's yours. It's personal to God. And you see their intention. Why are they doing all this? Look at verse 8 again with me. It says, we will crush them completely. You see, that is the motivation against God's people. There's another translation. The ESV renders it like this. They said in their hearts, we will utterly subdue them. And this, I think, drives more at the point. We'll utterly subdue what they are, who they are. We'll make them feel weak, destroyed, and easy to be our slave. And you see where they got to. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. This was the most important thing for them. Now, I don't know, I've never been burgled, and I don't know whether you have or not, but you hear reports how it makes people feel. They feel invaded, vulnerable, weak. They feel that somebody has invaded their personal space. But how much more is the feeling of Israel now when they know that the dwelling place of God has been robbed and ransacked and run through? Could you just imagine that for one moment? These are men in the midst of your uh, dwelling place. It was like ripping out the heart of a nation. So you see, it was the center of daily life was Jerusalem for them. The temple was the center for Hebrew culture. It was also the art gallery, the concert plaza, and the poetry library. library. But you see also, it was the center of their life. It was so much the center of their life. That life between God and them as a nation. You see, they defiled the sanctuary. They ransacked it. God could not be there. God had gone. You see, there's no means of reparation. We can't say sorry. We can't say sorry to God because there's no way that we can sacrifice to you to make amends for the sins that we've done. We're being judged at the moment in exile, but we've got no way of coming back. There is no place to worship. We can't gather and praise the God who has saved us before. And there's no means for guidance either. We are given no miraculous signs. No prophets are left. What are they to do? They just don't know. None of us knows how long this will be, they says. They say. The communication between God is thoroughly dead, or so it seems. And what's more, the enemy mocks them. They laugh in the face of the holy nation of Israel. Verse 10. How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe foe revile your name forever? Remember, what happens to the nation happens to God himself. 
their reputations are bound together, for he has promised, he has made a covenant with them. And so they ask in verse 11, why don't you, God, come and destroy the people who are reviling your name, who are making mockery of the God of the, of the universe? Why don't you come in judgment and destroy them? Take it from the folds of your garment, his right hand, and wipe them away. That will resolve the situation. That will resolve the disgrace of his name. How long, O oh God? When you look at, think of the history of the ages, it wasn't that long. But in the midst of it, a minute may seem like an hour and a day may seem like a year to them, especially in anguish. Why doesn't God come back? Well, if they were utterly perplexed and they were utterly subdued, well, God is utterly king, which is the good news, which is the centerpiece of this psalm. Right bang in the middle, verses 12 to 17, we have that praise to, uh, praise to the king. Verse 12. But you, O God, are my king from old. The failed kings of Israel's history. They're not looking to them. They're not looking for another one, but they are looking to God as king. Earthly kings have come and failed, but God is their hope. Yet God, you are my king, that king of old. And you see the, see the different spheres in which they're working. Working salvation in the midst of the earth. You see, he's bringing salvation upon the earth. And compare that with verse 4. Where those puny little Babylonians were roaring with rage in the midst of his sanctuary in Israel. Well, God's remit is much broad, much wider. We're going to the ends of the earth with God and he is our king. And you see how it goes. But you, God, are my king from old. You bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who split, the open, uh, split open the sea by the power. You broke the heads of the monsters in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of the Leviathan and gave him his food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set the ba- all the boundaries of the earth. You made both the summer and winter. Oh, they're looking to God, all right. They're looking to his mighty works. We'll take a quick look at that. From verses 13 to 15, you'll see them recalling God's work of salvation in the midst of Israel. Although it may be slightly disguised by these words, monsters of waters, Leviathan, and things like that, But if you have time, have a look at Ezekiel 32. When you have time, maybe afterwards. Ezekiel 32. And you'll see how Ezekiel is describing Egypt in the way that uh, the psalmist is bringing uh, the picture to us. That sea monster. And you can see as well, can't you? That rescue, that redemption from slavery into freedom in Egypt. It was you who split open the sea by your power. They were remembering that wonderful escape from the pursuing Egyptians through the Red Sea as God broke the heads of the monsters in the waters as as it fell back down. It was you who crushed the heads of the Leviathan and gave him his food to the creatures of the desert. They took out the spores of the land of Egypt and he was sustaining them in that desert. 
as it goes on to say, it was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up ever-flowing rivers. Remember how the Jordan, that ever-flowing river, just stopped so that they could cross into that promised land. You see, that was salvation to them. It meant everything to them. It defined them as a nation. This was God's intention to save a people for himself. Without it, that, they didn't have an identity. It was their God. But then it goes on in verses 16 and 17, taking a step back from the immediate problems and looking at the creation order. You see, it was a habitat created by God's hands. A habitat for God's people that he created. See, yours is the day, yours is also the night. You establish the sun and moon. We must just take and pause and just think about the God that we worship and come to praise in the mornings. He is the great king of old. And this is such a wonderful praise of, uh, uh, to that God. God had created the, God had created the world for him, uh, for the, us, and by him he saves. Excuse me. Well, thank God that he is utterly king. Then verses 18 to 23. I'll put under the title of Defend Your Cause, which you'll find in verse 22. Remember your name. Once again, that theme comes back up again. After that, praise to God. It's your name, God, that we want. People blaspheme you, scoff you, and mock you. And they don't want that to happen. Do not let the enemy triumph, he says in verse 19. Do not hand over the life of your dove, Israel, his people, to wild beasts such as the Babylonians. Wild, dopey, stupid, foolish beasts who will just go for your throat and rip out whatever they can for that quick meal. Do not like the lives of your afflicted people forever. And so they base it, once again, on that covenant. That unity that bond between them and God, that reputation, because he has promised. He has promised that land to them. He has promised a land of abundance and peace. And they want to go to God and make sure that people don't think they're stupid when they do. Have a look at verse 21. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. You know, we're going to God in prayer for his people. Don't don't let us look like fools. Because what will happen is that you will look like a fool, God, and we know that you are not. And so they say, arise, O God, defend your cause. Come like that judge. Because there's people in the midst of your holy land, unabated, loud, public uh, defamation of your name going on. This is what happens. The fools mock you all day long, verse 22 says. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. And that's where the psalm ends. But it ends without a definitive conclusion, doesn't it? Well, what happens next? Dot, dot, dot. How does God answer the cry of judgment on his enemies and the deliverance of his people, the restoration of God's holy name in the land? What was God's ultimate response for the profanity of his name? 
the pain was acute and his blood flowed. Broken and torn, his body was lifted above the jeering crowds. From his vantage point, he could see those in need of forgiveness. They mocked and taunted him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But he responded responded to his enemies. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. How hard is that? The cries of the people were saying, God, come in judgment and squash the enemy. Jesus was saying, forgive, for they know not what they do. I can't imagine how it is to forgive those who have done wrong against you. So, so in such a severe, severe way as this, you thought about people's houses who have been burgled. Have you forgiven that burglar? If you say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You see, God answered the cry of his people for the honor of his name by sending his son, Jesus. You see, in him we read that the fullness of God dwelt. However, like the verses between 4 and 11 of this psalm, his, the te- um, his, this temple, Jesus, was also desecrated by God's enemies. His name was profaned bringing it down to the ground with the intention of utterly subduing him. He was mocked, and as he bore shame and humiliation, hanging upon that tree, the God who had sent him appeared distant and powerless. The enemies of God had spat upon his holy name, crucifying his holy one, the sanctuary where God was dwelling, the one that he had chosen, How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? It was three days before Jesus was raised to death, uh, raised to life, sorry. I must have felt like a century. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. That's what they want. Rise up, God. Your name is in question. He breathed out his laugh last breath and died see at the beginning of his ministry Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth took a scroll and he began to read it from Isaiah and he read these words the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he stopped there, purposefully, because it says he then rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. It's not that he didn't know what was next, but he purposefully stopped, because the next line reads, and the day of vengeance of our God. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, by leaving out judgment, he was proclaiming grace and redemption. The next line of Isaiah would be for another time. God came not to bring his right hand of judgment to destroy his enemies, but to establish a new covenant. A covenant which those who have rejected him, who have profaned his name, 
and discriminated against the church could find grace and forgiveness, not judgment. Defend your cause, they cry. They could have cried, glorify your name. John 12. Now my heart is troubled. This is Jesus. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's the same cry as he's in Babylon. Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and said these wonderful words. I have glorified it. And will glorify it again. In Romans 15. For I tell you that the Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. You see, glorify your name, they cry. He has glorified it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Defend your cause. He has God is glorified for his mercy. How often has it been said that God is vengeful and full of wrath? Or indeed weak or unable to stop bad things happening? Especially to his church. You see, he has been glorified for his love for those who he made in his image. He has been glorified for his grace, mercy and justice to all that who will believe in Jesus, his Son. Well, it might be quite hard, may feel, to identify with the people in this psalm, considering it was 580-so B.C. But I think we can identify with the turmoil. Although we may not be in exile, there are parallels for us today. You see, clearly they have a passion for God's name. The name of Jesus. You see, salvation was at the core of their identity. They kept referring to it. As God proclaimed the Ten Commandments, he was saying, I'm the God who rescued out of the hand of Egypt. Here, they're talking about the God, my King of old, who brings salvation to the earth. Salvation is the core of their identity. And so it is with us who believe in Jesus Christ. If you know the salvation of God, then surely you should be wonderfully impassioned by the grace and mercy that you have received. We see the people of God is the church today. Representing God on earth, we are known as his ambassadors. But more than that, we are his temple, the dwelling place where God lives. That place which he is building. You see, we don't come with any merit either. We can't claim to say, well, God is on my side because I've done this or that. But like these people here in the psalm, their total reliance is on the covenant God has made with us and not by our works because of what he's promised for us. And we all see times when rebellion and ridicule against Jesus or his church goes unanswered, don't we? And I think we have that right to feel angry. How dare people, how dare foolish people, angry people, blaspheme the name of the Holy Lord God. So their problems 
are our problems too. You know, we live in a time when God is still scoffed at. The name of Jesus is more likely to be used as a swear word than in worship. You see, the hearts of men and women are still about control and dominance. You know, the Babylonians wanted to utterly subdue God's people, to undermine, to rip apart that which gave them their identity. And that's what's happening today, too. You know, with those militant atheists trying to remove our signs and replace them with their own, to mock the beliefs of Christians. Jeremy Paxman had to make an apology for the way he spoke about uh, Christianity when he was interviewing Richard Dawkins, of all people. You know, they want to bring it down to the level of believing in fairies at the bottom of your garden. You know, their accusations may seem peppered with apparent terms of respect and endearment. But at the end of the day, the goal is the same as the Babylonians. They want to utterly subdue, and they will do it in the same way. They will attack the truth of God, the very word which we uh, establish our faith upon. They will attack the meeting place, the center of worship, which is Christ. And they will attack us and our reputation as we seek to give light to the world. You know, as the husbands of um, verbal abuse can so easily turn into physical abuse, so can, the fellow, uh, so can fellow believers in Christ have petrol bombs thrown into their churches. Pastors' wives are taken, threatened, imprisoned, sometimes raped, so that the minister will renounce what he believes. I read a recent post about a church, of an attack of a church in Kenya, killing 17 people. The deadliest attack was on the African Inland Church where two policemen guarding the church were shot and killed. The attackers then threw two grenades into the building causing serious injuries to worshippers. It's the world trying to suppress, utterly subdue God's people. But God's people has God's name. We are known as Christians. Christ is our king and he will not let his name go unanswered for. You see, it's the assault on truth, the assault on Jesus and the assault on the church. And the problem lies at the heart of man, unchanged since the fall. In John, th- uh, John 3, it tells how we love the darkness. We love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. They suppressed the truth in Romans uh, chapter 1. Wickedness of men who suppresses the truth by their wickedness. And so what should our response be then as we go out this morning? No. We're not as helpless as those in the psalm. Thank God. They were without means. You see, they were anxious, to say the least. Having a look again at verses 4 to 11. They had nothing. No temple, nowhere to worship, nowhere to sacrifice, no prophets to speak to them, nowhere that they could just come together. Well, the temple that was desecrated was rebuilt. Christ was raised to life. And the way to God established and secured with unfettered access to God the Father. You know, we have the full complement of, ca- of the canon of Scripture in our hands. God has spoken to us and revealed to us all that we need to know. You see, the true enemies of God cannot prevail against his church. No matter how loud they roar. For Christ is risen and reigns. And he is working salvation throughout the whole world. Do we have a heart of Jonah? 
You know, if we're asked to forgive our enemies or go and tell them of forgiveness, are we reluctant? Do we have a bitter heart about those who've done wrong to us? Have we got a bitter heart about those who persecute his church, who defame his, uh, who defame his name? Or do we cry as God, uh, Jesus did? Father, forgive them. We need to examine our own hearts because this is how God cried. Uh, this is how God answered the cry for glorify your name. We will glorify it if we proclaim Jesus Christ and the forgiveness through, that can be found through him. So we must remember, whilst an affront to God is limited, just in his sanctuary in them days, God's plan of salvation is worldwide. We should be intensely passionate for the honour of God's name. He is here, and he is not silent. We should feel the anger when the contrary happens, but it has to be the right kind of anger. We read so often when Christians are oppressed, they, they can fight back with stones and sticks and guns. This is not the way of God. The way that we'll glorify God is through forgiveness and proclaiming the Lord Jesus. You see, our prayers, our thoughts, our actions should be shaped in light of the grace of God shown to us in the face of Jesus. That while we're still sinners, he came and rescued us. It should fuel our passion for his name. And in a time of violence, both physical, spiritual and emotional, in the places where, and the hearts where God's light is not shining, we should not pray for the blazing fire of God's judgment, but the revealing light of revelation of Christ's covenant, however hard that may be. We must pray for the church and its deliverance, that it may, may reflect the name of God. And so as we think about those central, uh, central verses in our passage today, be assured in the sovereignty of God when situations in our lives like, feel like an attack on our faith or our character, the covenant is unbreakable, established by God and sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. God revealed himself to us in Exodus 34. Moses proclaimed, uh, proclaiming to Moses, sorry, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. So our prayer, that we have the heart of God towards our enemies and towards those who would defame his name. But you, O oh God, are my king from old. You bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monsters in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of the Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. As it was you who set all the boundaries of the earth, you made both summer and winter. Stand to sing. <laughs>